Gazette Newspapers presents the Parting Shots Podcast. Now, here's your host, Daily Gazette Associate Sports Editor, Ken Schott. Thank you, Scott Geezy, and welcome to the Parting Shots Podcast. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe today. Thanks for joining me from the Parting Shots Podcast Studio in Schenectady, New York. We have another great show for you. Dennis Wozak Jr. of the Associated Press will join me to wrap up the New York Jets season in an interview I conducted early Tuesday afternoon, hours before the New York Giants fired head coach Joe Judge. And I'll have comments from ESPN Sunday Night Baseball's newest broadcast team, Carl Ravitch, Eduardo Perez, and David Cohn. On Tuesday, area college basketball fans got some good news when the, it was announced that the Albany Cup the series between the Albany men's basketball team and the Siena men's basketball team will be revived starting next season. And uh, there was a press conference on Tuesday, and Mike McAdam was there to talk about it, to uh, uh, listen to what they had to say. Um, and, Mike, appreciate you joining me. Thanks for having me, Ken. Happy faces all around at 677 Prime on Broadway in Albany today. Everybody was all fired up about the Albany Cup uh, after going on hiatus because the two schools just couldn't get their act together trying to iron out details and Albany wanted a little bit more than they had been getting and Siena was you know kind of resisting and then they finally found some middle ground thankfully so for the first time since the 2017-18 season the game was actually played in 2017 of that season uh, we get this fun matchup again you know two crosstown rivals the programs are kind of in similar spots right now in terms of you know recovering from transfer portal and COVID pauses and all those things. So by this time next year, you know, they'll be a little more, um, you know, fully formed and fully realized, and I think it could be a good game. So, um, yeah, it was good news. You know, I kind of wrote a column that's going in tomorrow's paper about... Well, we're taping on Tuesday, so people will see it by the time the Okay, yeah, <laughs> see, see, I should know these things by now. So, I'm, all right, I take it back. <laughs> but anyway, it, it was good news, and... You know, they really, this is the kind of thing that area fans have grown to expect every year, and it's up to the schools to kind of get it together, and they, they finally did. Now, they, they'll be playing uh, two of these games at the at MVP Arena, formerly known as the Times Union Center, and the twenty those games will be played next season in 2024. The 2023 game will be at Albany SEFQ Arena. But next season's game is going to be considered a neutral court uh, situation where there's going to be less Sienna logos around, and uh, so was that was that the compromise? No, it was way deeper than that um, because they did try that at one point, but there were more um, kind of behind the scenes um, expense and revenue parts of the equation that are, are different and, and more equitable. Well, totally equitable, fifty-fifty this time. So they did try to kind of put on the dress it up with the trappings of a of a U Albany home game, but it really kind of fell flat, didn't really accomplish what they thought it would, especially because, you know, Albany rightfully was disgruntled that they weren't getting a cut of the, you know, the expenses um, after the fact. Um, this time, and it's interesting because in 17 Albany Cup men's basketball games that we've had since they started this thing up in 2001, um, only one of them has been played at SEFQ Arena, so you th- would have thought that would have been the primary objective um, and, and like the main reason why Albany was happy that they got this going again and that they're going to have a game at their arena. But 
Athletic Director Mark Benton actually said today, you know, the biggest thing for them was the fact that they do get this 50-50 cut. They, they're on the hook for 50% of the costs and expenses to put that first game on, but they get 50% of, you know, all the, the revenue that comes back from tickets and concessions and stuff like that, which was, was a big thing for them. And, you know, it's almost sort of like a bonus that they get to play the game on their home court, um, the, the middle leg of this three-year contract series that they have. Maybe it's me. Maybe I'm just silly of thinking about this. Why can't this be a neutral site game every year at, at MVP Arena where you just, you know, the fan bases, it's part of their season ticket package, sort of like what the uh, Mayor's Cup gave between the Union and the RPI men's hockey teams and the women's it, hockey teams. That makes a lot of sense. I think the one reason... Um, Albany would prefer to keep it with a setup like this where they do have one game on their home court is we heard the word branding a lot it's not a lot but it came up a number of times at the press conference today and I think part of the branding of their program is to try to promote their own arena um, you know that their arena is on campus so theoretically their students should have an easy walk over there to, to you know get in there and get a big you know fun fan uh, you know, student section and, and loud and that's kind of, you know, it's a little tougher of a hike to get down to Pearl Street in Albany. Um, so, I, I, you know, I kind of think they don't want to surrender that aspect of it because it's a part of their identity is their own gym. So they, they don't, you know, I hate to speak for them, but it seems, you know, when I hear the word branding come up, part of their brand and, and you know, part of this is they're selling you know, they're trying to recruit players, and this is, you know, the re rejuvenation of this rivalry is kind of a little tool that they can use to tell kids, hey, we've got this fun thing going on, and I think if if Albany sort of surrendered their, you know, the chance to play one game at their arena would be sort of a, you know, a compromise that maybe they would prefer not to have to do. I mean, and, and again, I, you know, if they could, you know, they, they the one game they had there, they they had to sell out 4,538, which is capacity at SEFQ Arena. And so it has a little bit of a small town, small gym feel to it, a little more um, claustrophobic than uh, Times Union Center. So I think I think they don't want to like completely... What you're saying is logical and it makes sense, especially if there is an equitable 50-50 cut, because a lot of people will argue the fact that this thing just has to be down on Pearl Street because you can get, you know, they regularly get nine ten thousand people in there which is great you know it's wonderful but i think if i'm albany i, I don't want to fully surrender having that one on-campus game what was the uh, level of excitement like at the press conference on tuesday well whenever i go to these things and usually it's for a new coach who's being hired i keep a little checklist on my notebook every time someone says the word excited and today and i didn't keep my scorecard today but what i was thinking was there were four people that got up there the ADs, Mark Benson from Albany and John Dargenio from Siena, and the two coaches, Carmen Masterello from Siena and uh, Dwayne Killings from Albany. And I, I almost set up a scorecard to see if I could get an excited out of each one. I, like, go four for four, and I just, like, kind of – I think I forgot to bring a pad and pen, which is <laughs> on me. But, um, you know, that, that word gets thrown around a lot, and it's genuine. I mean, it's genuine when they hire a new coach, but something like this – it's genuine too because they know it's something that all the basketball fans around here want and and now they're delivering it so um they get to pat themselves on the back but they also get a you know a fun series that they can fire up again were both sides you think stubborn in before they finally like, made this deal i think they're yes um and 
to some degree, rightfully so. I know Will Brown was when he was the coach at Albany was adamant about having a game at SefQ. I uh, had a lot to do also with like the season ticket holders were kind of getting the shaft. But Siena, rightfully to some degree, you know, could always easily make the point that there, we shouldn't go to SefQ because it's a significantly smaller arena. The demand for tickets is there. It's based on the fact that they've drawn. Uh, over 167,000 people for the 17 games, including the SefQ, which is averaged out at 98.38, so just under 10,000 average, including being skewed a little bit by that 4,500 a couple years ago. Um, so I think Siena was stubborn because they knew their building was the preferable place for everybody. Like, if you're a neutral fan, you don't want to go to SefQ. You want to go to Pearl Street. You want to go to MVP Arena. Um, so they... You know, they had a pretty good, you know, bargaining chip or, you know, point that they could make along those lines. But in the meantime, Albany wanted it to be a more equitable financial deal for them. And lo and behold, they get it. And now we're on again. So Now the women's contingent still continues to play their uh, Albany Cup series. They just yeah. haven't done it. They've done it on campus on both seats. So that, that's going to continue on campus for both of Somebody's teams. able to figure out how to stay in agreement <laughs> around here. It's the women's team. So, I mean, the men should maybe take a little, uh, you know, little example from them um, to, to keep this thing going. Because one question that did come up was, why wasn't the contract for longer? And do you foresee, um, you know, renewing it after this, these three years are up? And everyone obviously was optimistic that that would be the case. And one thing, um, I think it was John Dargenio said that, pointed to that was next time they need to like start talking about it well before the contract is being is going to be up as opposed to like scrambling to get something done when there's still a lot of factors up in the air and then it doesn't happen and then everybody's mad so maybe if they see the it's its first game is successful with the neutral site is that something that they can start negotiating uh, for 2025? I mean, I, I, it, and again, John was the one who said a lot of things were on the table, including a longer contract. They, he and Mark Benson have been had ongoing, you know, on and off discussions, you know, hampered by COVID and, and other issues that they had to deal with since the series was dropped. Um, so was, everything is kind of on the table. I, I think this is good because... Sienna, they both get a true home game, and then the third one is a true 50-50, and that seems like the fairest compromise mm -hmm. of all. You know, if you go to all the games at, um, uh, at MVP Arena, even if the financial split is equal, you know, um, they both lose a little bit because Siena loses, a, you know, a true home game, and, and, and likewise, um, Albany doesn't get to play on their campus. Mm -hmm. So I... I think they get like one of one from behind door number one two and three and and they get all doors all three doors yeah, so. instead of one well it's great to see it back and uh, it never should have gone away in the first place i'm glad they were yeah. able to work it out hey these things happen but you know we're moving forward and thankful that uh, we're going to do it again because it's always fun yeah you can see mike's column on dailygazette.com and wednesday's print edition along with uh, michael kelly's uh uh, story from the uh, press conference on Tuesday. That's also online at dailygazette.com. Mike, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Ken. Pleasure yeah. as always. All right, it's Mike McGadam coming up. We'll wrap up the New York Jets season with Dennis Wazak Jr. of the Associated Press. You're listening to the Parting Shots Podcast. All of us love sports, but not all sports are created equal. College sports have big budgets, dedicated alumni networks, 
and corporate sponsorships. Professional sports have even deeper pockets. Millionaire owners, lucrative TV and radio deals, and merchandise sales. High school sports have you. Everyone agrees high school sports give us plenty of reasons to cheer. And now's a great time for us to give back. Supporting your hometown high school won't cost you much, but it will go a long way to ensuring the games we love the most are here to stay. New York High School Sports. They're good for our kids, good for our community, and best of all, they're good for you. This message presented by the New York State Public High School Athletic Association and the New York State Athletic Administrators Association. This is you all men's basketball coach Dwayne Kills. You're listening to the Party Shots podcast with Daily Gazette Associate Sports Editor Kill Shot. The New York Jets finished another season with a losing record and missing out on the NFL playoffs. But is there a reason for optimism? Let's find out as Dennis Wazak Jr., who covers the Jets and the NFL for the Associated Press, uh, Press joins me. And uh, Dennis, welcome back. I know it's we're uh, taping on January 11th, but Happy New Year. And same to you, Ken. Appreciate you having me. As I mentioned, the Jets, uh, you know, another losing record, 4-13 and this year. Yeah, it doesn't look good. However, they were competitive. I mean, they beat the Tennessee Titans, who are the top seed in the AFC here as, as we get reset for the NFL playoffs. They beat the Cincinnati Bengals, who are, co- are going to the playoffs. I mean, they gave the defending Super Bowl champion Tampa Bay Buccaneers a scare. So, is the 4-13 and record deceiving? I think... Um... Yes, in over the overall look, um, it, it's a, a bit deceiving. I mean, it, the, the bottom line is they didn't play well enough to win, right? So four wins is what they pretty much are. I mean, given the fact that they had a first-year head coach, a rookie quarterback, injuries all over the place, and people don't want to hear the injuries excuse, but I, I think it, it was a factor in in this uh, in this situation. I, I think it was hard to get any sort of consistency on offense and even on defense as well. There were, there were a lot of holes. Uh, there still are. They, they've got a lot of work to do in the offseason. But I think they established an, a vibe of optimism. And, and I think they think they have the quarterback in place. Uh, they have the coach in place. And those are two major factors and and, you know when you're building a franchise and trying to rebuild uh, a team and and I think that's what the Jets have that's what they believe uh, they have for the future so it's a good starting point but they know four wins isn't good enough and Joe Douglas the GM he's got six wins in two years you know and and two coaching staffs and that kind of thing so there there there's a lot of work to do um, but the fact that they did give some of these top teams a tough time um, and beat, as you said, a couple of them in the Titans and Bengals. And um, they were in that game against the Bills on Sunday, too, until, uh, until the fourth, you know, late in the third quarter, fourth quarter, um, when the Bills just kind of took over. Um, next year, they need to win those games. They need to be able to close out opponents and, and, and just really move forward. What do they need? To close out those games, what, you know, what, what, as far as the draft's concerned, what do they need? Oh, there's a lot, you know, and I, I think the, the Jets uh, acknowledge that there's, that there's a lot that they need. I, I think when you look at some of the pieces in place, and, and you look at a guy like Carl Lawson, a defensive end, 
who could provide a pass rush. You know, he missed all season with a knee injury. So that's like getting a new a new piece, uh, you know, for next season. That They need a, a, a better pass rush. They need help on the offensive line. They need some more skilled players. I mean, it was rare this year that you had, that you know, on the field with Zach Wilson, um, Corey Davis, Elijah Moore, Jamison Crowder all together. Um, you had guys filling in all over the place. I think they need another number one, you know, and they need tight ends. <laughs> you know, So you could go up and down the list, Ken. It's like, you know, all right, they need a – maybe they need a number one cornerback. They need some safety help. Uh, so they will be busy during free agency, and they've got a ton of picks. They've got a ton of salary cap space. Um, so I, I think you're going to see a, a pretty good uh, churning of the roster here, and um, I, I think they have some guys in place that they want to, you know, keep as foundation pieces. Um, but you know, they they need some guys who they are going to bring in who can be here for the long haul. Well, let's talk about Zach Wilson, the first year quarterback. Yeah, he did miss some time, some injuries. He ended up uh, with nine touchdown passes, 11 interceptions, uh, 2,334 yards uh, of passing. I mean, he did struggle early in the year, uh, but had, did you see any progression and getting better as the season went along? Yeah, I think when you look at his season, it's a weird season because uh, he had, you know, the, all those struggles through the first part of his rookie season, and you know, a lot of those were, were you know, things that a lot of rookies deal with. And you saw it happening. And I think his head started kind of spinning. You know, things were moving quickly. He was trying to overcompensate for, you know, playmakers not being there. And because of injuries, illnesses, and, and you know, so forth. So he's trying to make plays. He's trying to get a feel for the offense and struggling and turning the ball over because he's doing too much. Um, then he gets hurt, and he misses a month with a knee injury. And then he has to sit back and watch as Mike White and Josh Johnson and, and uh, Joe Flacco run Michael Floor's offense, and they, they ran it efficiently. And he got to see up close, like, okay, this is how this is supposed to work, and I don't need to play what they call hero ball, where he's trying to make plays all the time. But he has that ability, so there's a balance that he's got to have in, you know, when he's out there, in being able to take what the defense is giving him, but also being able to turn nothing into something because he has that ability. And as we saw in the last several weeks of the season after he came back from the injury, he was able to do that a bunch. And look, I, I don't count the, the Bills game. You know, at all because the offense couldn't do anything. I mean, they they were held at maybe the third lowest uh, um, yardage. Uh, you know, I just it was it was bad. But I mean, look look who was out there on the field too. So I, I don't count that as much. Here's the key factor: he didn't throw an interception over his last five games, and that is something that no Jets rookie quarterback has ever done. That that's a streak that nobody's had, even Joe Namath. You know, and that's. That's the the that's evidence right there that Zach Wilson was making better decisions, and that's what you wanted to see as the season went on, and and he was able to do that. I mean, as far as the off season for Wilson is concerned, how much more can he get better? What's he got to What's he got to do to get better? 
That, that's interesting because I'm writing a story on that, just kind of the evolution of a rookie quarterback going into his second year. He's He's got a list of things that he wants to work on. He knows there are there are weaknesses right now in his game. There are certain things that, that he's got to improve on, the, the footwork, uh, the timing, uh, you know, just the, like it seems like basic things. But the thing is now he knows what he needs to work on. At this time a year ago, he didn't even know where he was going to be playing and what type of offense or, you know, what offense specifically he would be in. And now he knows what he needs to do better in LaFleur's offense. So um, there are certain things that, that are going to click and things that he knows he needs to continue to work on. And here's an interesting thing with, uh, with Wilson, too. His personal quarterback coach is John Beck. And Beck was hired during the season by the Jets to be with Wilson and to kind of be his um, sounding board. Um, and, and uh, you know, somebody who uh, could help break things down for Wilson in a way that he can better understand it. Well, Wilson is going to be working with John Beck in the offseason, and I, I believe that means that Beck won't be on staff uh, moving forward. He, he's got his own business, and I think just for the, the last half of the season – Beck was really there to, to kind of help. And now he's got that person, who Zach Wilson, who will be able to um, work all offseason with firsthand knowledge of how the Jets want to run their system and how they want their quarterback to work. So I think that that is a key piece in this development where he's got somebody who's – it's really kind of a slick move by the Jets if you think about it because – Coaches can't really work with the players per NFL rules in the offseason. But now that he'll be out there with the guy who worked on the staff for half a season, it's like he will be working. Zach Wilson will be working with somebody on staff, you know, uh, a coach, because he knows exactly what Michael Floor and the offense wants. So I think those, those are important factors. And really, it will help him, Zach Wilson, jump from this rookie year to his second year because there will be those those things that he knows he needs to work on in this offseason. Like a quarterback whisperer sounds like. Exactly, yeah. exactly, Ken. i got to ask you a question, Dennis. I mean, you, you covered – how many stories did you write about Zach Wilson? I mean, it seems like <laughs> – we, we were sort of a running yeah. joke in the office about it. It was another Zach Wilson story coming in. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's – I you know, one of the things is – because you have a quarterback who's a franchise, you know, supposed or hopeful franchise quarterback, people want to hear about him. He's he's a he's a uh, you know a topic of conversation all the time. Um, it's interesting because when the Jets had Josh McCown or Ryan Fitzpatrick and guys like that, you know, those guys have been around. Their stories are known. They're known commodities. What they can do. Um, what a rookie or a young quarterback can do is, is really, you know, what people want to see the development. They want to hear what does the coach have to say. And fortunately, you know, I, I've had to do that, you know, maybe once a week and then on game day and that kind of thing because it is an important, uh, you know, angle. But I remember back in the day when Mark Sanchez was here and that was – it was like every other day because, you know, the coach would talk about him. He would talk. Receivers would talk. And it was, you know, it's one of those things. I could see where fans and readers could get, uh, 
you know, just weary, a quarterback weary reading, you know, it's like, all right, enough already. So, uh, but, but that's also an indication that there isn't a lot of other things to talk about with this team. You know, um, there, there is like their defense was bad for a long time during the season until late, um, in the stretch, the offense wasn't that good. And, um, in the late, you know, like 20, 2009, 2010, 2011, there were so many different storylines because you had so many different players who were good and they were making the playoffs. So there were all different aspects to write about. So that day might be coming. Uh, right now, though, the all all eyes are still on the quarterback. Yeah. So, yeah, plenty, plenty of writing about him, plenty. <laughs> How about the coach Robert Sala? I mean, the job he you know, said record four and thirteen doesn't look great, but he's no Joe Judge. He didn't go off the deep end. Yeah, and I think um, what I was talking about earlier about the vibe that that is a direct result of his approach. I think um, he's calm. He's um, I think he's a player's coach. I think they respect him. Um, I think they like how he's running. The uh, the operation. I think there there were times during the season where he played, uh, you know, guys who earned playing time. I think Denzel Mims was a good example, the wide receiver in the second year who struggled mightily. There were fans who wanted to see this guy. You know, he's he's a, a, a relatively high draft pick. Why isn't he out there when the Jets need some playmakers and? There were other guys, Jeff Smith or Braxton Berrios even, and guys who were out practicing him, out just kind of, you know, doing what they needed to do and, and doing more. And they earned playing time, and that was something I think that you'll see with, with uh, Robert Sala and his staff, that they are rewarding guys who buy in and, and operate. And, and I think that kind of sets a tone throughout the organization that you've got to you've got to earn it, and if you do earn it, you know you're you're gonna you're gonna be able to play and and um, participate and, and contribute for this team. So I think that's that's a big part of what you're seeing here. But you know, let's face it, this first year is a honeymoon. You know, it's it's a first year head coach, a rookie quarterback. So the wins and losses didn't matter as much as the progress of both. You know, the coach and quarterback. So. Um, all bets are off next season. You know, you 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 need to start winning, and um, I think a lot of that is going to have to come from what Joe Douglas does in this off season, and then Robert Sala moving forward with that. Because I mean, it, there are plenty of coaches who struggle in two years, and and then they're gone. Um, I don't think that would be the case here. Um, the Jets don't usually operate that way, um, but you see it plenty around the league. I mean, you know, as you mentioned. Giants, look, look what's happened with their coaches over the past, you know, several years, uh, you know, two and done and that kind of thing. So, um, you know, they, I, I think having set that tone, now they need to take advantage of it. Um, and Robert Sala, you know, has to has to win. You know, he has to start winning and not make maybe not make the playoffs. But they talk about December football being important. And it's been a long time for, for the Jets that this playing in December has been meaningful for them, and they need to kind of take that step. And it won't be easy because that AFC East is tough. Yeah. Uh, what does he have to do to improve his coaching ability? I, I think there were little things that, that you saw, like, you know, come up where, um, 
you know, um, uh, calling plays fourth down, um, timeout issues, um, just just little things that have gone on um, that it's hard to kill a guy for because you know it's his first time doing it, and the, the same with his uh, coordinators too. They, you know, Lafleur, um, you know, he, he had that that play call against the Buccaneers that really kind of cost him the game. You know, down near the goal line and go on, go for it on fourth fourth down and um you know they didn't make it and you know from the seven yard line where first down would have would have probably sealed the win for them and i think it's all learning experience for all of these guys and um you know just like the nuances of being a coach on a daily basis i think robert sala has grown immensely um in that aspect and and just kind of managing the team as a whole let me ask you about the uh Jets-Buccaneers game that you covered and the bizarre scene of Antonio Brown leaving the field. What, how, did, how did you see that unfold? I mean, how shocked were you? Well, it's funny because at that point in the game, I was I was writing, I believe. I, it, like, you know, whatever. I, I know I, I had my head down and somebody tweeted it that, oh, there's something going on there. And, like, the whole press box kind of looked up. And we were like, do you see that? Do you see that? What's going on? And if you look down, and by that point, Antonio Brown's shirt is already off, and he's kind of waving to the fans in the end zone as he's walking. Um, and to be honest, like, you look, and you're like, is that a fan? You know, and the only reason you knew is because people in the stands start, started, uh, um, you know, posting video of Antonio Brown. So it was, like, bizarre because – Obviously, we've never seen something like that before, and like, what what is happening? Like, did, and um, you know, did he get into an argument? And then you see, you know, all the things that went on with that. It was just, uh, it was wild. And I'll tell you what, covering that game was crazy because you have a Jets team that should have won the game. You know, they should have sealed that game. There was a bad play call down there, a bad execution by Zach Wilson. And the offense, and then Tom Brady does what he always does. So, you know, and, and he leads a uh, you know a comeback win with 15 seconds left, throws a, a touchdown to a guy no one's ever heard of who was just elevated from the practice squad for the winning score, and it's all kind of overshadowed by by you know this bizarre situation with Antonio Brown. So there were a lot of elements going on in that game. And it was like, Whoa, this, this is nutty. So that, that was definitely a unique game to cover for sure. And, and, you know, and it would have been something just, you know, on its own with Brady leading that comeback and doing what he does, but you know, just having the Antonio Brown aspect and then check this out. Okay. So I'm, I took my son, my oldest son to the Nets game the night, after that game, um, it was one of his uh, Christmas gifts, and we're sitting in the stands, and all of a sudden, there's Antonio Brown. I'm like, I can't get away from this guy. Fortunately, he kept his uh, shirt on for the game, but, man, it's like, what a bizarre, like, week and a half it's been for that guy. Yeah. Uh, we talked about uh, the coaching situation. Around, as, we, as we speak here on Tuesday, four coaches have been fired. Uh, Vic Fangio in Denver, Matt Nagy in Chicago, Mike Zimmer in Minnesota. And Brian Flores in Miami. I mean, the, the first three names I mentioned, you know, they were expected to be fired, but Flores is firing. 
was stunning to me. I mean, he had back-to-back winning yes. seasons, and his team overcame a one-and-seven start this season to finish nine and eight. Why was he fired? It seems like there was a little bit of a, uh, you know, would you hear the philosophical differences? You know that there were there were different takes between coach and GM on how they were doing things, and yeah, I was stunned too. And I, I think most people around the NFL were because of what you just said. You know, the way they were able to turn the season around and. You know, it's two winning seasons he's had, and, um, you know, I think, talking Jets here, I think uh, there would be a lot of uh, uh, Jets fans who would take that. You know, two winning seasons, it's been a while, you know, and, and so you see this coach who has, uh, you know, earned a lot of respect around the league, uh, and he's out. I, I think when I first saw it, I think it was uh, uh, Adam Schefter tweet, I had to, you know, check it real quick to make sure it wasn't some, you know, some bogus tweet, you know, and then you see other people confirming it down in Miami and and, uh, so forth. But, yeah, that that was kind of a a big surprise because he wasn't even mentioned as being on shaky ground uh, there. So I would see I would think that he will end up somewhere. And I mean, there are still a few uncertainties around the league, you know, in Houston with Giants, uh, the Raiders also. Although with the Raiders, uh, I mean, with what Rich Bisaccia has done and leading that team into the playoffs after all the stuff that's gone on with that team, I, I think he kind of deserves a chance to, to run it on a full-time basis. I, I, that's what I think. The players love him. Um, it's clear from what they were able to do under him. Um, so, so I would, you know, I, I would think the Raiders should probably stick with him, but you know, you don't know what's going to happen with David Cully in Houston, and that could be a place where Brian Flores ends up. Um, but yeah, some of these other openings are, um, you'll, you'll hear a lot of guys like Doug Peterson and Brian Dayball and, uh, um, Bill O'Brien even, for, you know, in Jacksonville, maybe Eric Bieniemy, who's been a hot candidate over the last few years. Um, so the, there, there will be a lot of names thrown out there for like Bears and Broncos and Dolphins and Jaguars for, for sure, and, he, and even you know even uh, the Vikings. I'm surprised if Brandon Staley still has his job with the Chargers after the Ooh, bizarre boy. timeout. The timeout that you know, ended up you know, letting the Raiders kick the field goal. Uh, the, the Thursday night game in Kansas City when he went for it, if a fourth down a few times instead of uh, analytics to me is just I'm, I'm old school. I mean, take the points. And then, but especially going for fourth down in his own zone end there against the Raiders on Sunday night, it was just just bizarre. I mean, is analytics ruining the game? Yeah, I mean that's a that's a good question. I mean, um, so like for me, I I kind of feel the same way as you, you know, and and um, I especially when talking about players, you know, I, there's so much that goes into the, like the analytics. Well, the analytics say, you know, this guy and that it's like, what do your eyes tell you? You know, and, and coaching used to be, what are your eyes and what are your gut? You know, what does your gut tell you? And, and now it's more, what do the analytics say about going for two or going for it on fourth down here and that kind of thing. So, yeah, I, I think, um, there are some chances being taken or not based on numbers, you know, and, and, um, Rather than feel, you know, what, how do you feel about your your guys out there? What do you think? What's the confidence level in in your your players? And, and I mean, and just some of the the moves. And yeah, that timeout is just. I, I, if he were in his second year, he would probably be gone. 
You know, the, there there was enough there, um, embarrassing and and questionable, where you could see the Chargers say, "Okay, uh, we can't do we can't do this." I mean, you know, I, I since he was such a a, a hot uh, candidate last year, um, you know, I think the Chargers are willing to give him another year. Uh, and hope that he learns from from some of those mistakes this year, for sure. Yeah. Uh, let's look ahead to the playoffs. Uh, which uh, game intrigues you the most on Super Wild Card Weekend? Man, that, looking at some of these, they, there are some really good matchups because the Raiders coming off of what you know they just did, and they're playing Cincinnati, at, you know, at Cincinnati, which you know hasn't won a playoff game in forever. Um, you look at games like, you know, the 49ers and Cowboys, classic matchup, um, Steelers and Chiefs, you know, Big Ben continues his career and he's going up against Mahomes in Kansas City. But the one that I look at, and maybe it's because, you know, I cover the Jets and I'm an AFC East guy, that Patriots Bills in the first round, you know, I mean, after the way that Bills have played down the stretch and, you know, especially struggling against the Jets and then the Patriots and you know Belichick it just and and the meetings that you know that the previous times these these teams played that's the game I'm intrigued because I could see it going either way you know I don't have a strong feeling one way or the other and a lot most of the other games you think like okay you know the Chiefs here the Buccaneers over the Eagles um you know the Rams probably beat the Cardinals I I don't know I mean I the fact that it's in Buffalo gives the Bills an edge, I would say, but you can never discount a Belichick team in the playoffs. You just can't, you know, and, and he took a rookie quarterback in Matt Jones and did all kinds of crazy things with him. Sometimes he threw a lot. Sometimes, you know, he threw three times, you know, and, and who knows what he's going to do this time around against Buffalo. So, um, you know, we'll see. But that's, that's the one matchup where – I would say, yeah, the Bills will win. Uh, wait, now nah, I think the Patriots will win, and I just keep going back and forth on that. I think our NFL writer uh, Barry Wilner, I think he's he's kind of feeling the Patriots there too. So uh, it that's the one that I definitely um, am intrigued by going into uh, play the first weekend of the playoffs. Yeah, well, I'm an Eagles fan. I mean, I'm I'm happy. I'm, I'm unexpected this year to make the playoffs. Go nine and eight. I wanted Nick Sirianni fired five games into the season, but uh, <laughs> uh, but the game that really intrigued me—if the Eagles win, great. I mean, I'll be happy. I, I don't expect them to beat Tampa Bay, but the game I like to see is uh, and intrigues me the most is the Forty uh, ers Cowboys. Was a everybody you know raving about Dak Prescott against performance against the Eagles, forgetting the fact that they were going against second, third, and fourth stringers. And to me also, my concern for Cowboys is your defense has problems stopping the Eagles second, third, and fourth stringers in the first half. And then yes. the, the third thing, since the game is also going to be on Nickelodeon, I want to see Jerry Jones slimed. <laughs> that's that's a good point. I, I didn't even think of that. That's that's perfect. That would be yeah. That that would be must see must see TV right there. <laughs> well, that, well, guys, I appreciate a few minutes talking Jets. Uh, obviously, uh, you know you'll still be busy with uh, NFL coverage as we get up to super the Super Bowl. So I appreciate it again, my friend, and we'll talk soon. Sounds great, Ken. Thanks for having me, my man. All right, that's Dennis Wazak Jr. coming up. ESPN has a new Sunday night baseball announcing team. Of the interview from Monday's Zoom session with Carl Ravage, Eduardo Perez, and David Cohn next here on the Parting Shots Podcast.
The pro football season is here, and it's time to play the Daily Gazette You Pick'em Football Contest. Predict the winners of the weekly games via your You Pick'em Online account. The fan with the most correct points each week gets his or her name in the Daily Gazette on Thursday and wins a $100 ShopRite grocery card. The fan with the most overall points after 23 weeks wins a $1,000 travel voucher and could win a trip to Hawaii. For official rules, go to dailygazette.com slash football. The You Pick Em Football Contest is run by the Daily Gazette Advertising Department and not associated with the Daily Gazette Sports Department. Hi, this is Glenn Clark, head coach and general manager of the Albany Firewolves lacrosse team. You're listening to the Parting Shots podcast with Daily Gazette Associate Sports Editor Ken Schott. Welcome back to the podcast. Last week... ESPN announced its new Sunday Night Baseball announced team. It will be a three-man booth headed by Carl Ravitch. He will be joined by analyst Eduardo Perez and David Cohn. The trio replaces Matt Vaskurgian and Alex Rodriguez. A-Rod is not going away. He will be joined by the New York Yankees play-by-play announcer on the Yes Network, Michael Kay. They will do eight alternate broadcasts on ESPN2, similar to what Peyton and Eli Manning have done this season on Monday Night Football. On Monday, ESPN conducted a Zoom call with Ravitch, Perez, and Combe. I asked about the chemistry between Ravitch and Perez, who have worked many games together over the years, and having Cone join them. I also asked about the lockout and Cone's experience with the 1994 strike when he was pitching for the Kansas City Royals. You'll hear from Ravitch first followed by Perez and Cohn. I'll just go first quickly. Um, science was not my strength, uh, but if there's a compound that mixes with everything, Eddie's that compound. Um, you know, you, you walk through airports, restaurants, get into cars. Eduardo knows everybody, and they like him, which is hard for me to understand, and I'm guessing Cohn has a similar... Not everybody likes me, and I don't think everybody loves Cohn. Everybody in the world loves Eddie Kenny. So the, the, the chemistry is is real simple, and uh, I, I know David will, will fit right in. It, it sounds cliche about this whole family thing, um, but I, I know having, having been at ESPN since 93 when they were in high school or college watching, there's no closer knit group than the baseball group at ESPN. Doesn't mean that other groups aren't close, but there's no closer group than the baseball group. And as you've known, we, we've stuck through some highs and some lows and some changes. Um, so the chemistry aspect of it is like the, the last part of my concern. They, they, this will be a group that gets along really well and, and it will show, I hope. Yeah, and um, I'm going to add to that. And again, it's, it's the people behind the scenes that make it work. You know, the people that, and, and Coney is going to get to know a lot of them um, from, you know, you know, all the way down. And it's it's to the point where even the first time you meet them, you get to know their names right away. And they're not, they're not forgettable because they do all the little things right. And again, I, I mentioned it before, teamwork. Um, the only way I'm going to look good is if my teammates are on point and they look good as well. So that's important to me. And that's the way I was able to play. Um, parts of 13 seasons in the major leagues is because of my teammate. And, um, and again, it's, it's an honor to be next to always, as I said, at the legend and Carl, and now it's going to be the legend and Coney, uh, as far as I'm concerned, because I think the entire country is going to really enjoy the aspect that he will give and the point of view he's going to give. And I can't wait to, to be able to just be knocking elbows with him during the game and, 
sometimes we're going to knock each other out in our play that we're, we're astonished by, by the players. Because, again, it's about the players, but um, we're going to try to bring it to life as much as we can at home. And as far as the lockout? Yeah, that, that's fantastic. <laughs> you know, it, it really is. Uh, you, you know, just to piggyback on those is, uh, you know, Eduardo and I will, will, will provide the classic pitcher and hitter uh, analysis. And even almost, you know, Eduardo's been pretty close. I don't know how many times he's been interviewed, but I know a lot of organizations have considered him for a managerial prospect as well. And I, I've interviewed for a pitching coach job uh, at least once. And so that's the dynamic we'll bring is that pitcher-catcher or pitcher-hitter kind of dynamic. And then also you've got two guys that love the game and love today's players. You know, that, that's really important, I think. In a lot of the baseball broadcasts around the country, you hear a lot of, uh, yeah, the game was better back when I used to play. That's not the case here. I mean, we really, I'm a huge fan of, of today's players, of how they go about it. It's different than when I played, but that doesn't mean that one way was better or not. But um, you're going to see us genuinely get excited about today's game in, an, in a time when that's really needed, I think, in, on a national broadcast. And, you know, the second part of your question, as far as the labor uh, situation goes, uh, I think there is the framework for a deal. Uh, back in the mid-90s, there was two completely different frameworks. There was a hard salary cap, and there was the players trying to fight off a hard salary cap and a whole different framework of, of reference. So they're within the same framework. Where does the luxury tax fall? Can the players address control issues and uh, competitive teams uh, in, instead of tanking or service time manipulation certainly is an issue. So control issues on the player side, but the framework, I believe, is there for a deal. Uh, at some point, I believe it's going to happen. Ravich is the fourth play-by-play man for Sunday Night Baseball. Besides Vaskurgian, John Miller and Dan Schulman called the games. Ravich was interested in replacing Schulman when Schulman stepped aside after the 2017 season. Ravage admitted he was disappointed when he did not get the job. Well, I, you know, I, I think it goes it would go back probably uh, to the last time this position became available. And like other people, and I don't think it's any secret, at least some of those that were considered, whether it be uh, Boog Shambi or Jason Benetti or Dave Fleming, it was clear then that I was interested in doing something like that. And I was candidly disappointed then that it didn't happen. Um but if you, and I think you probably have some idea, my, my trajectory or career at ESPN, like Tarico and Fowler, Steve Levy, you know, there's a whole bunch of other guys that started in studio and then moved into play-by-play. And I've done that with, whether it was Little League uh, World Series, College World Series, uh, college basketball, uh, those things that have kind of, there's been somewhat of a, of a roadmap to see that this was a natural progression for me if it became available. So uh, I didn't necessarily do any, I don't think any more um, pleading on my own behalf than anybody else who is after the position. And I'll be honest, Richard, I don't think that it's hit me yet what, what this position means. Um, because I, I, I do when you say it and you say it like that, it does, it's a little bit awe-inspiring. But uh, I know that that I'm comfortable in doing it and look forward to working with these guys. And it, it won't be having done two years of major league games. I don't look at it any differently. I worked in Binghamton, New York. And if somebody were asking what the difference between Binghamton, New York TV and ESPN television is, um, the number of people watching, but there's still a camera, there's still lights, things still go wrong. So I'm 
very comfortable in moving into this role, but I don't think I was a self-advocate more than anybody else was. Finally, I asked the trio about Buck Showalter returning to the dugout to manage the New York Mets. Showalter, who managed the Albany Colony Yankees to the Eastern League title in 1989, had worked as an analyst for both ESPN and the Yes Network. Combs spoke first, followed by Ravitch and Perez. But since, since he was my manager at one point, uh, and you know he was a manager in 1995 when I was traded to the Yankees in the middle of the season, uh, and then the final game of Buck Showalter's career was I was on the mound for 147 pitches, uh, walked in the tying run in the eighth inning in Seattle in Game Five. Um, to, 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 uh, every time Buck and I see each other, it's it's left an indelible mark on both of us. That particular game. Uh, it was Buck's last game managing the Yankees. That was a that was a bitter pill for him to swallow. Uh, since that point in 1995, when, when I was allowed to throw 147 pitches, he's changed a lot. Obviously, he's evolved, and that's the thing that I think people don't realize about Buck Showalter. There's not uh, such a clash between old school and new school with Buck. Everybody perceives him to be, oh, he's going to be this old school guy. Can you know? Is, he gonna, is that going to blend in well with? Uh, you know, what's going on across uh, across baseball? Well, I think it will. Buck is an information hound. He wants to know everything about everybody. He wants to understand every little facet of analytics so that he can push back against it. He understands that part of it. You can't bash something if you don't understand it. So uh, believe me, Buck is going to do everything he can to understand every aspect of what's going on in, in terms of biomechanics and, and, and any aspect of analytics you want to discuss. So... Uh, he's much more progressive than he's been given credit for. And he will be surrounded, and the infrastructure is being built there with the Mets because of their resources now and their new owner, that this is going to be an interesting guy to watch. I think uh, everybody's looking for balance. You look about, you look at what's going on with some of the coaching hires. Uh, yeah, there's, there's a lot of young guys. There's kids out of college being hired. But there's also kind of that pushback of uh, – do we need somebody with major league experience, uh, you know, on the coaching staff somewhere? So there, there's everybody searching for that balance, and, and Buck Showalter is no different than that. Uh, he's going to be an exciting guy to watch and a really important manager to watch this year for the industry because baseball's always been kind of a copycat sport. So uh, the, the success of Dusty Baker, Tony Larusa, it's going to be interesting to watch Buck Showalter because he's the type of guy that really can impact the decision making on an industry wide basis. And, you can count me as one of his fans because I've seen him evolve over the years. He was different in 95 with the Yankees his last year. He was different in Arizona. He was really different in Baltimore. He really evolved in Baltimore in terms of allowing the players to be themselves, allowing the players to show more emotion. Uh, the days of criticizing Ken Griffey Jr. for wearing his hat backwards, taking BP, are over. And Buck understands that, even though he might have been on the other side of the fence years ago. He's clearly evolved in that area and understands that today's players, you know, it's different. It's, it's a different game, and um, I applaud it. They should be allowed to show legitimate emotion on the baseball field. Uh, you know, and there's a big difference between legitimate emotion and, uh, you know, the in-your-face kind of disrespectful type type of things that we've seen at, at times. So, uh, you know, I think Buck's going to surprise the people, and he's much more progressive, just to reiterate that point. He's much more progressive in his thinking than he's been given credit for. Yeah, Kenny, I'll just add to it two, two things about Buck. Um, we think he evolved when he came to work for us at Baseball Tonight. We kind of got his personality to shine a little bit because he's a funny guy, and he's obviously a smart guy. Um, 
assuming the players stay healthy, I think they compete for a World Series and win one within the next three years. I think they're they're that equipped with him there. It's it's like the last piece to the puzzle for me. Um, and then more importantly, when we were at the All Star Game in Seattle, I think it was '01. Um, he was working with us. I had some. I ordered some Chinese food to the hotel room, and I have a shellfish allergy. And the uh, chicken and broccoli was made in oyster sauce, which I did not know. So an hour later, I had, you know, I had swollen up like a blowfish, and I called Buck. I said, "Buck, you got to take me to the hospital." So Buck drove me to the hospital and uh, hang up, hung out with me. He and his son were hanging out with me when I had a shot of adrenaline. So I always tell uh, Buck that he saved my life. I saved his career, and he saved my life. So we're kind of even that way. So uh, I, I'm a humongous fan of Buck Walter as a person and uh, as a manager, no doubt. I echo every sentiment. Echo every sentiment. The only thing he won't change, though, is when he goes out to change the picture, and David probably knows this because he probably saw him do it often, that hand will go in the back pocket as he walks towards the mound. That will not change, and he doesn't even know that he does it. <laughs> I'll be back to wrap up the podcast and have the latest winners in the Daily Gazette's You Pick em Football Contest in just a moment. I've got a math question for you. When you add tolerance, subtract prejudice, and multiply efforts to treat one another with respect, what do you get? Less division. And school sports have it down to a science. Looking for an example of what can happen when we realize there's more that unites us than divides us? Look no further than high school sports in New York. This message presented by the New York State Public High School Athletic Association and the New York State Athletic Administrators Association. Hi, this is Daily Gazette reporter Shenandoah Breer. You're listening to the Parting Shots podcast with Daily Gazette associate sports editor Ken Schott. Back to wrap up the podcast. The Week 18 winner of the Daily Gazette's You Pick'em Football Contest is John Reinhardt of Middleburg. John wins a $100 ShopRite gift card. Congratulations, John. The Week 18 VIP winner is Tom Catugno of BL's Tavern. I'll be announcing the weekly winner of the You Pick'em Contest, and that winner's name will appear in Thursday's Daily Gazette. If you would like to play, and we're still playing in the playoffs here, go to dailygazette.com and click the You Pick'em logo. The NFL Playoff Super Wild Card Weekend begins Saturday. You can see my picks and where you can watch the games by going to dailygazette.com slash category slash sports to see my picks and the TV listings. I was 9-7 and seven in Week 18, and I finished 171, 102, and 1 in the regular season. Keep checking out dailygazette.com and the print edition for the latest updates in news and sports on the coronavirus pandemic. I want to thank all the doctors, nurses, and first responders who are dealing with this pandemic. We appreciate the job you're doing in this difficult time. If you have not gotten vaccinated, please do so. Do it for yourself, do it for your family, and do it for your friends. That wraps up another edition of the Parting Shots podcast. I would like to thank Mike McAdam, Dennis Wozak Jr., Carl Ravitch, Eduardo Perez, and David Cohn for being part of the show. I'll have another college hockey podcast on Thursday. 
I'll discuss uh, the Union's uh, upcoming games uh, this weekend at St. Lawrence and Clarkson. I'll also have an interview with ECAC Hockey Commissioner Steve Hagwell. If you have questions or comments about the podcast, email them to me at shot, that's S-C-H-O-T-T, at dailygazette.com. Follow me on Twitter at Slapshots. The views expressed on the Parting Shots podcast are not necessarily those of Gazette newspapers. The Parting Shots podcast is a production of Gazette newspapers. I am Daily Gazette Associate Sports Editor Ken Schott. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next time. From the Parting Shots podcast studio in Schenectady, New York, good day, good sports, and rest in peace, Sidney Portier and Bob Saget.